Well, as a kid, my parents used to take us boys every few years to Austin to see the greatest show on earth. You see, I didn't grow up in the entertainment world, and so we went to Austin to see Ringling Brothers and Barman Bailey's Circus. And to a kid, it was magical. People flying around on trampees, elephants, lions, and tigers, and bear. It was the greatest show on earth. Anybody remember that? Don't get to drag our kids to that anymore. And so a few years ago, when The Greatest Showman, this movie about Barnum Bailey, came out, I was excited. I was excited until I found out it was a musical. I don't really do musicals. But my family dragged me to the movie, The Greatest Showman, and it had me hooked from, from the first minute on. And after the movie, uh, I began to learn about a backstory. Uh, there was a video that came out, and it had a couple million hits. And it was the backstory of the mo movie. It took seven years to make this movie. Think about a musical and think about all the people you have to logistically bring together to walk through the script, but also walk through the numbers, all the songs that are involved in a, in a musical. And so there's a story that's told that it took eight months to get everyone who was singing, everyone in the film that was singing the different numbers in New York City. It took eight months to get them there. And the day before, the main actor in this movie, Hugh Jackman, right? He went to the dermatologist the day before. And if you've ever been to the dermatologist, I don't think we have any in here. They like to cut, right? He goes to the dermatologist the day before, this coordinating thing, and the dermatologist said, hey, we got to take some cancer spots out. I'm going to do it right now. And 80 stitches later, he walks out. And the doctor reminds him, he's like, look, you're going to have to take a little time off from singing. You can't sing. And Jagaman knows that 80 people are showing up the next day to sing. And I don't know, Wolverine may have said, Doc, you don't know how fast I heal. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how that went down. But the next day, he calls the producer. Calls the producer of The Greatest Showman and says, here's the dilemma. I can't sing. And the producer says, you're showing up. You have to show up. The cast has to see you in that role. And so he shows up and he tells everyone what happened, and he walks through all the numbers of the, of the movie with the cast. And you can Google this. Don't do it now. You can Google this, and you can see when they come to the last number. The last number is the song From Now On. This movie's been out five years, so sorry if I bust some things up for you. From Now On, it's the redemption of Barnum Bailey. It's the song that represents the redemption of Barnum Bailey, who has chased the lights, remember? He's chased his own fame, his own name, to prove himself to others, and he's almost destroyed his family and his relationships, and he's literally burned his own building, functionally burned his building to the ground. And in the movie, you see in that scene, from now on, it's the redemptive song of the change in Barnum Bailey. And so the rehearsal, they come to the last song and the video pans in on Hugh Jagman who's standing there reading the words and all the cast began to sing from now on. And as the song begins, you hear, you can see his lips begin to move. He's not supposed to be singing. 
but he's mouthing the words. And when they come to the place in the song where it says, and we will come back home, he begins to sing. He's not supposed to sing. And it gets louder and louder and louder. And you hear and feel, even when you watch the video, the shift in the room. And the camera begins to pan to other people because they know the backstory. They know what he's doing. Even though he even touches his nose and it's bleeding, he begins to sing. And the cast begins to sing this song from now on with him. This redemptive song. And it changes the room. It changes the scene. And couple million hits later, he goes on every talk show and talks about the backstory. There's a climactic moment, redemptive moment in the show. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul, who was debilitated, who was in chains, was in Rome, pinning the letter to the Ephesians. Even though he was debilitated and in chains, he's pending this letter, and he's gotten all the way through almost to the last part of the third chapter. In the first few chapters of Ephesians, it's about people, lost people, who've sought the lights coming home, and he can't help himself. And even though he's writing and not singing, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when he gets to this place. The text that we're in today, he breaks out. Paul breaks out low in prayer for the Ephesians and high in praise. So that's where we're at this morning. And he's going to show them the transforming power of the gospel that's changed them, still at work and shaping them. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, the transforming power of God that not only saves you but continues to shape you, and he does it in the form of a prayer. Turn with me, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And as you turn there, let me ask you this morning, has God brought you back home? Or are you still chasing the lights and your name? Has he brought you back home? We should start there. Have you turned from your sin and your shame and trusted Christ, who's the only second chance you got? If so, maybe that's you. Have you, do you believe that God is still, and still at work transforming you, changing you, molding you to the image of his son? Do you believe that still, or have the hurts and the pains and the trials of life dampened your belief that God is, in fact, still at work in you? Do you believe that? And how do you express that? How do you express perhaps your gratitude toward him? How do you pray? Who do you pray for? Do you believe God is still at work in prayer in your life? Those are the questions we're going to try to answer today. This is really the hinge text of the book of Ephesians. It kind of comes to this climax of, remember we said the immeasurable Riches of his grace in two and a half chapters. And this last little paragraph or two in chapter three is this climactic hinge of the text. And now you're going to go from the wealth of Christ. And next week we're going to go, here's what it looks like in real life. Real, practical life. So let's look at this hinge 
text, and you're going to see the posture in which Paul approaches God. And then you're going to see the specific petitions that he petitions God in prayer for, for these Ephesians church. And it's not just a prayer. It's really how God grows you. So pay attention to these petitions, and then last, he's going to break out in praise. So let me read verse 14 and 15, and we'll just kind of work our way through the stirring text today. Verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Verse 14 and 15. Look at the first phrase there, for this reason. You know, when you study the Bible, you have to go back when you see the word therefore or for this reason. And actually, as Weston said last week, Paul's taken a little kind of bunny trail off into something else. And so when he says for this reason, if you look back at chapters one and two, what you find out is what reason? That God has brought near, he's made enemies, allies, Jews and Gentiles, he's brought them together in the mystery of the church you learn that it's transforming grace. It's his transforming grace. It's his saving grace. As you look back at chapters 1 and 2, what reason do I bow my knees? Because God has saved a dead man. Because he's made allies out of enemies that he's brought us near. For that reason, these families are put together. His saving grace drives him to prayer. And look at the posture there. I bow my knees. It's kind of an odd phrase. It may not be an odd phrase to you and me when we think about the physical posture of prayer. You've likely got on your knees and prayed before or seen people get on their knees and pray before. But it's a little bit odd to, in this scenario, Paul being a Jew, because about 90% of the time, Jews would stand when they prayed. If you go today and look at the wailing wall, they're standing and they may be rocking back and forth, but most Jews don't bow on their knees, but it's certainly a heart posture, right? What he's getting at is a physical posture, but a heart posture of what? Reverent submission in view of the saving grace of God. And so your point this morning is this, in view of God's saving grace, we pray with dependent, look at it, Dependent humility. Do you see that with Paul here? He's dependent upon God. That's the posture. And he bows before who? It's important who we say we worship and we bow before. He bows before the Father, literally the Father of all fathers. It's interesting because in Scripture, even though it's, it's not often do you see people bowing on their knees, there are a few instances, and they're pretty extreme instances. Peter is on his knees when God raises Dorcas from the dead, and he's praying on his knees. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, what is he at? He's praying on his knees to be delivered. Remember, they came and got him to take him to the cross. He's on his knees. You see it here, and you see it in one other place in the New Testament. You see it in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. Guess where? Ephesus. When Paul goes to Ephesus, at the very end, 
He's leaving to go to Jerusalem. And the reason he's leaving to go to Jerusalem because he's being persecuted so much in Ephesus. The elders of the church of Ephesus, you got to go. You got to go to Jerusalem. And later, a couple years later, he's writing this. And then the text says this. He calls the church together, specifically the elders together. And he preaches the sermon effectively, effectively to them about how they need to be careful and watch for wolves on the outside when he leaves. And then he prays for them, and he gets on his knees with the Ephesian elders. And he prays for them, and they're weeping, and they're crying. And then he gets on a boat, and he goes to Jerusalem. So the picture for the person in Ephesus hearing these words or reading these words, they have a vivid picture of Paul as they're reading this three years later, they have a vivid picture of this man's love for them. That this man prays for them desperately with humility, praying for them. What a great picture. Can I ask you, why do you pray? Now, you think about, why do I pray? Well, the Bible tells me to pray. I'm just going to pray. You pray first. Let me give you a couple thoughts. You pray because you're grateful, right? We praise God when we pray because we're grateful for what he's done for us, don't we? Chapters one and two, the gospel, the free grace of God that we don't deserve, that we could never earn. We're grateful for God and what he's done for us through the cross, are we not? So we pray because we're grateful. We also pray because we're confident, not confident in ourselves, but we're confident in what God can do through his power and his son, right? We're confident, last and related, we pray because we're desperate because we can't pull things off that only God can pull off, which you'll see in the next four or five verses after this. We can't pull things off. I know we think we can oftentimes, right? We come to God desperate, in need. But the truth of the matter is, is sometimes that's the reason that we don't pray, right? I mean, desperate people are praying people, and praying people are desperate people knowing that only God can answer prayers. Leaders in the room, if you're a leader, you ought, surely you ought to be thinking like a community group leader, an elder, we ought to be thinking of ways in which we encourage and challenge people. But at the end of the day, we need to be on our knees asking God to do work in people's lives that we can't do. And that's what Paul is doing here. But we, we tend to think we've got it together, don't we? I want to I share with you this allegory, an allegory about, comes out of, it's called Palm Monday. You're like, hey, next week is Palm Sunday. Remember Palm Sunday next week where Jesus rides on the donkey into Jerusalem and the people lay the palm branches down and sing Hosanna, the king? This allegory is called Palm Monday and it's from the perspective of, of the donkey that Jesus rode in on. Perhaps you've heard it. And there's a few players in this allegory before I share it with you. There's the donkey on Monday. Sorry, Shrek. I, I can't say the word donkey without like giving a little bit of Eddie Murphy. Palm Monday. So there's the donkey, there's a narrator, and then there's his, the donkey's mom at the end. So listen to this. Palm Monday. On Palm Monday, on Monday, the donkey awakens. 
his mind still savoring the afterglow of the most exciting day of his life. Jesus was riding on it. Never before had he felt so much a rush of pleasure and pride. He walked in town and found a group of people by the well. This is Monday. I'll show myself to them, he thought. But they didn't notice him. They went on drawing their water and paid him no mind. And then the donkey says, throw your garments down. Don't you know who I am? They just looked at him in amazement, maybe because he's talking. Someone slapped him across the tail and offered him to move. And the donkey says, miserable heathens, as he muttered to himself, I'll just go to the market where the good people are. They will remember me from yesterday. But the same thing happened. No one paid any attention to the donkey as he strutted down the main street in front of the marketplace. The palm branches. Where are the palm branches? The donkey shouted. Yesterday, you threw palm branches at me. Hurt and confused, the donkey returned home to his mother. And his mother said, gently, you foolish child, don't you realize that without him, you are just an ordinary donkey. I'll let you draw application <laughs> to the donkey. I'll leave that with you. But it's also often the place that we find ourselves. We think we're the ones in the light, on the stage. See, in view of God's saving grace, we are dependent not on ourselves but on him. We humble ourselves before him. We know our place. So let me ask you this morning, what kind of heart posture do you approach God with? Is it like the donkey? Or is it a humble desperation and gratitude? There's a place in the Gospels where I think you see this. You see two people praying. When you come to the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee, they're both at the temple and they're both praying. What do you see? You see the tax collector, the temple courts, and he's praying to God. And what does he say? Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. And then from the distance, the Pharisee is there. And what does he do? He looks over in the distance to the tax collector and he says, God, thank you for not making me like him. Aren't you glad, God, effectively, you've got me on your team? Yeah. Right? Do we come to God with a, a dependent humility? So we see the posture and the way in which we approach God because his saving grace. It's got to be a place of humility and honor. But what do we pray? Who changes people? Look at these petitions that Paul prays for his friends, for the people in the Ephesian church. And really, this is the meat of the message, the meat of the text. Verse 16 through 19, look at what he prays. That by the riches of his glory, he might grant you four things to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ, second, may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
Third, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, to know the love of Christ. And then fourth, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, the thought is this. Let me give you the thought, second thought today. Pray for God's people to rely upon, upon God's sustaining grace. His sustaining grace is not only are you saved by grace, you are sustained and shaped by grace. It's interesting because this is certainly a prayer that he's praying, but it's more than a prayer. This is how God works in your life. He strengthens you. Look at these different peti petitions. There's four of them, and it's, they're framed, all of them, if you're just trying to make sense of them, with the word that. People look at this prayer as a progression. John Stott, the theologian, said this is like a staircase prayer. Imagine a staircase. It starts low and it moves high. Spurgeon said it's like a ladder prayer. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That God is working. So let's take those different stairs that move up. The first one is strengthened and encouraged by the power in your inner being. That's inside, in the inner man. Not out there. When your mind, let's just make this practical. When your mind is spinning and your heart is hurt, maybe you even look at this past week and you just reflect on this past week. And you look at your life. I know this week for me, it's like on Sunday afternoons, I usually make my list of things that I have to do and people I have to meet with. And I'm thinking, man, this week, week is a busy week. I've got all kinds of different things. I can't wait to meet with this person and this person, and God's going to be at work in that. And then things change. There's things in our family that changed, and my wife had to go out of town. And thank you for caring for us and feeding us, by the way. But I, there was a moment or two or a day or so there where I'm like, how am I going to make all this work? And there was stress and anxiety, and I'm like, God, I thought you wanted to do these things this week, and he had different plans. Think about your own life. Do you need God's strength? Even your last week, the word strength here, you think of, you know, that kind of strength. The word is translated encouragement. So read it that way. To be encouraged with the power through the Spirit. That's what the Spirit does. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit is that He encourages you. He counsels you. He helps you in your inner being. Why? Look at the next phrase. Why do we need that? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And maybe you say, well, Christ is already dwelling in my heart, right? When I come to know Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells me, and that's true. But I think the implication here, the word dwell means to take up residence, and beyond that, it means make his home. Christ wants to move in. You come to church on Sunday morning and, and go, Jesus is here, Spirit is at work. He wants to get in the car with you and go home with you. Even when you're driving and yelling at somebody, he's there. He wants to dwell there, all right? When you get home and you're arguing about lunch, and when's lunch ready, and impatient with your kids, Christ is in the kitchen. He also wants to be in the living room. He wants to be in the closet that's locked in your heart. 
that you don't want to let anybody in. He wants to permeate that space as well. He wants to permeate the space in your liquor closet. He wants to permeate the space on your online history. He wants to permeate every space in your life. He wants to dwell in your home, in your heart, with you. That's the extent to which God wants to be present and dwell and take up residence. And you go, man, I would rather him be a guest. He comes and he goes, no, Christ dwelling. He makes your heart his home. Are there any rooms or any places in your life where you're like, not here, Lord, not here. He wants that space. He wants to redeem that space as well. So two things so far. The third one, look at the next phrase, being rooted, imagery of tree roots here, grounded like a foundation in what? He wants to be rooted and grounded in what? You to be this way. He's asking God to do this in these Ephesians' lives. And and this is interesting to me. We often think about Christ and our love for him, right? How much do I love Christ? Here, God's power at work to convince us, to help us comprehend and believe what? That we can comprehend his, Christ's love for us. The height of his love, the depth of his love, even when you're in that desperate, dark, depressed place, the width of his love, the length of his love. I think the reason why is this. I mean, there's, there's many reasons. But let me ask you a question. I'm going to do this in question form. You go, well, I understand on paper that Christ loves me because of his, his powers at work, so he loves me out of that. I understand that. Who do you talk to the most? You're like, well, I, I think I talk to my spouse the most, or maybe my kids, or maybe my coworkers. I don't think you do. I think we all talk to ourselves more than we talk to anybody else. This is not self-help. I'm not going self-help. I never save you. But we talk to ourselves more than we talk to anyone. Maybe not out loud. I hope not out loud. Maybe you don't answer yourself out loud. That gets really weird. But we talk to ourselves. What do we usually tell ourselves? We usually, most of us, probably 90% of us, we beat ourselves up, don't we? You're not this. You're not that. And then Satan comes along, and what does he do? He whispers into your ear more lies. He builds on those lies. The world builds on those lives too. I'm not saying don't be critical of yourself and see yourself only one way, but I'm saying we need over and over and over again to be reminded of the love of Christ, the height of his love, the depth of his love. Look, there's no place that you can go that you can escape it. Height, depth, width, length. If you know the Son... You're loved by him. Whatever the problems are in your life. Paul David Tripp said this about talking to yourself. He says, talk to yourself, just don't listen to yourself. Listen to the word of God. Listen to the truth of God that is love. There's no end to his love for you. He loves you. And then you come to the top of the staircase. Look at it, that last phrase in verse 19. I think this is the top of it. 
the height of the staircase prayer of Paul to these Ephesians on his knees that you will be filled with the fullness of God. Let me tell you first what that's not. That's not, hey, I'm going to be ju- I'm going to be full of power like God to know all things, okay? That's not I'm going to know all things, okay? His incommunicable attributes. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is this. He wants their lives to be so filled with Christ that there's nothing else that they want to pursue. Think about it this way. Let's say you have about a a six-ounce cup, all right? And you've got this cup, and it's full of water, just that this water has dirt in it and debris in the water, okay? And you're trying to figure out, how do I get this dirt and debris out? And there's a couple of options, right? You could take maybe uh, something to uh, tweezers or something and try to get each of those things out one by one. Good luck, right? Because some of that dirt has really become liquid. And maybe you go, well, I got a better idea. I'll, I'll take a filter and I'll dump it upside down and I'll take it out. But, but again, you're not going to get it all out. I would propose, and we can argue about this later, I would propose that the best way to get the dirty water and the debris out is to take a pitcher of pure water. And you take that cup, and this is a messy process, and you pour that water into that cup, and it's overflowing, and keep pouring. Because as you keep pouring and it overflows the cup, what happens? The debris and the dirt and the grime come out, completely out, and what do you have? You have pure water. It's not wrong, y'all, in your life to go, man, I am lustful. I need to deal with that. And I need to take my tweezers and focus attention here. I need to take my greed and I need to pull that out or filter that out. I need to take my anger and do the same thing. My addiction and do the same thing. That's not wrong, but that's never going to get you to a place where you're filled with the fullness of God. What will do that is to pursue him, pursue his son, to be filled up with Christ, to let Christ dwell in every area of your life, so much so that there's no space for anything else. So we pursue him above and beyond all our other means. So here's the question. What are you pouring in your cup? What are you pouring in that cup? Here's what we often pour in the cup. Me. More of me. More my way. My thoughts. My control. Me. We need to be filled with the fullness of God through his son We need to let Christ take up residence fully in our home. And it's interesting to go, well, how do I do that? You know, I don't know why, but spiritual discipline for some reason or the word obedience is is falling on hard days. We've replaced it with things like therapy and other things, and there's places for that. But when you open your Bible and you meet with God, to know him, not just about him, to know him, 
You're filling the cup, y'all. You're filling the cup. When you meet with him in prayer, you gather corporately in prayer, you're meeting with God, you're filling the cup up. When you come and worship him, whether here or at home, you're filling the cup up. You're filling the house up. So we need to cultivate things in our lives that fill those cups like Bible study, opening the word, meeting with God, intentional time in prayer, worship, communion of the saints, together, filling our hearts up. Part of coming together on a Sunday morning, we're not to forsake our assembly, to be reminded that we fill the cup up with him. So what is Paul doing? There's a lot of moving parts in verse 16 to 19, but he's effectively saying this, I'm going to pray on my knees desperately so that these believers in Ephesus will rely on God's limitless, gracious resources that they might have Christ. Here it is. If you need a phrase for these few verses that I've walked through a lot of details, that Christ would rule and reign in our lives. Every part of our lives that he will rule and reign there. Amen? So is Christ ruling and reigning in you? Is there anyone near you, whether it's a spouse or a kid or somebody in your church, that you need to be desperately on your knees praying to God that his strength and his power would be at work, molding and shaping that person more and more to the image of Christ, that Christ would reign in every room and fill every part of that person. That's a beautiful prayer that we ought to be praying for one another as Paul is praying here. And maybe you say this, well, that's, these, these things that Paul is praying for, it's pretty ambitious. I mean, don't you know these Ephesian believers? Have you ever gone to the book of Acts and seen some of their mess? <laughs> we kind of do those things too. It's ambitious. Why does he have such confidence to approach the throne in this way? Look at verse 20. Now to him. Here's why. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work in us, within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. He breaks out in praise. Your third thought today is this. We pray with great expectation. You see that? He's able. Verse 20, he's able to answer all these prayers from verse 14 through 19. He's able to do what? He's able to even do beyond those petitions. Exceedingly more than those petition, petitions. I want you to notice something though. You ever notice how this verse right here, verse 20, is used? Him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, it's often ripped out of its context, isn't it? It's like, I want comfort. I want something material. I want God to bless me. And God says, he's exceedingly and abundantly able to do more than I ever imagined. What's the context here? I'm going to preach. What's the context? The context is spiritual growth, that Christ is ruling and reigning, not material. 
Here's what happens. And I'm not saying don't pray for things that you need or even things that you want. But understand something. Here's what we typically do. We get really disappointed in God. We get disappointed in, because he doesn't answer some of our prayers because they're our expectations. But they don't really fit into spiritual growth They fit into me. I want more of me. Fill my cup up with more of me. And when God doesn't do it, what do we say? God's not powerful. God's not at work in my life. He is at work in your your life. He's just sparing you from you. So this verse, man, it's, it's not about giving yourself more of you and wondering why God doesn't answer those kinds of material comfort prayers. It's about being strengthened by his power that Christ would dwell and Christ would fill your life. Verse 21, why does he do it? He does it for his glory. Why does God do this? Why does he answer prayers? Why does he move in people and work on people's lives for his own glory? his own weight. And who gets, who displays the glory of God? There's two things in this passage. One, it's obvious. Christ displays the glory of God. We took communion this morning. Here's what Christ has done for you. He's taken the cup of wrath. He's taken that cup upon himself and died on a cross for you and for me so that you might take and drink of the cup of grace. And so Christ displays the glory of God, something we acknowledge every week when we come together, what Christ has done, the power of Christ, the love of Christ. We take communion together. It's displayed. But something else here, and it's unique, there's not many places you see this in Scripture. In the New Testament, it's also in the church. Why? Because the invisible God has made himself visible through us, the church. And so we pray with great expectations. I want to take a step back, if you don't mind doing that with me. We're coming to the end of chapter 3, which is this, I said earlier, is this this kind of hinged text. I want you to observe something about the Apostle Paul, and I think there's a great point to this. I mean, as I've studied this, it's like, I need like 20 more sermons in chapters 1 through 3. And I, I crammed it in. Even had a 50-minute sermon for y'all. But here's the deal. This high theology that you've seen in three chapters of, of God's electing grace in chapter one, our need for that electing grace because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. He's made us alive, and then he's joined Jews and Gentiles in the church. The gospel's power enough. Powerful enough not just to reach Jews, reach Jews, but also Gentiles. He's brought us together, and he's at work. Notice something when you get here, especially, and you'll notice it all the way through the New Testament. Paul is not some cold, curmudgeon-y theologian. He just crosses his T's and dots his I's. He is moved. Do you see it? He's moved That high theology moves him to action. It moves him to his knees to bow low in prayer that God might be at work in this church's life. And then he breaks out and prays right here. 
at the end of chapter 3. He's not some cold, curmudgeon theologian who's given us these truths. It's not just some tool for him. It moves him to worship his God and to pray to his God that his God would move in others. Do you see it? So as we study the Word and as we do institute classes and understand the great truths of God's Word, doctrine, and let's not make that something that's just an intellectual hobby or a tool to feel smart or to feel smarter than somebody else. See, doctrine moves us to worship. It moves us to our knees to give God praise. We've seen the posture, the petition, and praise you know, as I think about the greatest showman that I opened with today, and I think about Hugh Jagaman, who is moved because his redemptive song and his, the character in the movie, I think, man, if that is something that's redemptive and something like a movie that's not even real, man, how much more for people who have been changed, who have come home and transformed by the gospel, who were once lost and chasing their own lights and chasing their own way and their own fame and their own name, and God has brought us home to himself, how much more grateful and confident could we be? to be changed and continually shaped by the gospel of Jesus, that we would understand that his power works to show us how much he loves us, the height and the depth and the length and the width of his love. So your takeaway today is this. Let Christ in. Let him in. Let him inhabit and fill your home. Let him inhabit the spaces, believer, that you don't want him to inhabit. Let him into your home. Let him fill you up. And maybe you're here this morning and you literally haven't let him in at all. And you maybe are like Barnum Bailey pursuing your own way and your own path. Let him in. The power of the cross can change you just like the power of the cross continues to shape you. Let me pray.